Welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast of the American Phytopathological Society, and I'm your host, Matt Casson. I'm an associate professor of forest pathology and mycology at West Virginia University, and this is the first episode of season four of Plantopia. Today, we are welcoming a very familiar guest. I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Jim Bradeen, host of season two and season three of Plantopia, professor of plant pathology, and Associate Vice President at Colorado State University Spur Campus. Dr. Bredin completed a Bachelor's of Science in Horticulture at Michigan State University and a Master's and PhD in Plant Molecular Genetics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I've known Jim for a number of years through our shared service work with APS, and he's probably without exaggeration one of the most beloved members of our professional society. Jim has had a very productive academic career as both a researcher and teacher, and more recently as an administrator. Jim served as a longtime professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Minnesota, transitioning to the role of department head from 2013 through 2022, where he helped found and direct the Stackman Borlaug Center. In 2022, he accepted a position as Vice President for Spur Strategy at Colorado State University in Denver. As you might imagine, Jim has an extensive list of research publications, invited presentations, and awards, including several related to distinguished teaching, mentoring, and diversity. Jim is what I refer to as an APS superstar. In addition to serving as host for the past two seasons here on Plantopia, Jim is chair of the Plantopia Podcast Steering Committee. He served as the internal communications officer and governing council member from 2018 through 2022. He has served as a member and chair of the APS Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion since 2010, and as a member and chair of the Academic Unit Leaders Forum from 2013 through 2022. Jim, it's a real pleasure to have you here today on the other side of the microphone. It's been interesting and exciting to, to see how you've transformed Plantopia over the last 24 episodes, and it's really exciting for me to be taking over the reins and something that's dear and near to both our hearts, plant pathology. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt, and congratulations, and thank you for taking over this host role. I'm really excited to see where you take this podcast and how it continues to evolve. Yeah, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about your educational background and, and kind of career over the last few decades. Clearly, in interviewing people, Part of your story comes out and trying to relate to them about their experiences and their research. And looking back at kind of your academic history, you were educated in the Midwest, Michigan State. You did a bachelor's in horticulture, followed by a master's and a PhD at University of Wisconsin. Are you a uh, Midwest boy? Uh, are you from the Midwest? I am, yeah. So I, I actually grew up in, in Michigan. So I'm a Michigander, so hello to, to Michigan out there. I spent the early years of my life on a, a grape farm, not a winery. It was a grape farm. We actually grew Concord grapes for Welch's, jams and jellies. And you know, I think it really was those early years that got me interested in the plant sciences. Yeah, that makes sense. Going from horticulture and then uh, eventually into plant molecular genetics. What kind of experiences on the farm did you have there? This was your family farm? It was my family farm. My parents, I think I was two years old when we moved there. Neither of my parents actually came from farming background. So they decided for whatever reason to make a go of it. I 
have to share that it really didn't go very well. <laughs> and we were, we spent about a decade or so on the farm, but those were really formative years for me, obviously exposure to agriculture in a big sense. My parents were big gardeners. My grandmother actually was a keen plants woman and they, I credit her with kind of fueling a, an interest in plants that I had from an early age. And it was pretty unusual, I'll just say back then, for a nerdy little gay kid to, to be interested in plants. It wasn't uh, something that my classmates were pursuing. But I, I think those early years really did fuel an interest in plants more broadly, gardening in particular, horticulture. And I was probably about 11 years old when I read an article, a magazine article about Henry Munger, who was a plant breeder, a cucurbit breeder at Cornell University. And that, that was the first time I realized that I could actually have a career in plants. I could play with plants for my whole life and get paid for that. And I think that just fueled this interest that really burns bright even today. Yeah. And looking over your CV and the kind of crops and plants you've worked on, of course, you've done a lot of work with solanaceous crops, of course. But I saw a cucumber and rose and a couple other things tied into there. And you bringing up the cucumber thing links that in. There was an interest there. Were roses some of the things that you were interested in as a kid? Not particularly. My, my mother actually was named Rose, so she always uh, had a lot of roses in the garden. But I was from an early age interested in horticultural crops. And really, as you pointed out throughout my career, I've worked on a lot of different crops. All of them, though, have been horticultural. Mm -hmm. Roses really came about through collaborations. When I was a professor at University of Minnesota, collaborated with people like Stan Hokinson, who was a an ornamental woody plant breeder, Jim Luby, who is an apple breeder, both rose and apple bean and the rosaceae. And they're great scientists and great people. So it was fun to work with them on a whole variety of, of projects. And I, I think that really fueled an interest in the rosaceous crops. And so that's an area that I have worked in, Solanaceae being the other uh, big plant family that I've worked in. Okay, I'll, I'll hold you to this question because it's one that's often asked. <laughs> But we're talking about it now, so it's an intuitive leap is of the plant groups you've worked with, really, what are you most passionate about? I know that changes over time. I assume that there's a lot of interest in solanaceous crops and still to this day, you're mentoring students back from Minnesota and serving on committees. Where do you stand on all that? Boy, that's a tough question. What, which of your babies is your favorite? That's right. I think I, I do have pretty broad interest in the plant families, plant science in general. I think the connective tissue in, in the work that I've done has been the use of plant genetic diversity to make our horticultural crops more sustainable. So that's true in the potato lake light system that I've worked in. It's true in rose black spot and in apple scab. If you notice, I'm not really answering your question, which was my favorite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they're all very different. I certainly, I do have particular interest in some of the plant genera that are in the Solanaceae. I'm also increasingly interested in adaptation of plants to dry environments. So I'm starting to sort of look at Cactaceae and some of these plant families that are really associated with, with dry environments. So it may be hard to pick a favorite plant, and I get that. Of course, you've worked on oomycetes, you've worked on fungal pathogens, and trying to understand resistance and breeding for resistance and important crops like potato and and rose, do you find it more challenging or enjoyable to work with oomycete pathogens versus fungal pathogens? Or have you devoted equal parts of your career to working on both? It seems like you have a longer history with late blight 
Yeah, my dirty little secret is that unlike so many of our, our listeners and so many of the guests on Plantopia, my my educational background really was more in the plant sciences proper. So I, I always approach plant pathology and plant health from a plant disease resistance point of view. So I'm somewhat agnostic on in terms of what pathogens I, I work on. I think the the omyces, the Phytophthora infestans being a, a classic example, is such an incredibly destructive plant pathogen. It's hard to work in the field of plant pathology, certainly in the field of disease resistance of potato, and not work on Phytophthora infestans. I think it's maybe a little more tractable to work on some of the fungal pathogens I've had interaction with. But I think I, I've always been interested in, or always uh, adopted the perspective of plant resistance first. So there, there are certain commonalities between the crops or the, the species that I've worked on, the plant species that I've worked on, not only because they're horticultural crops, but because of some of the complexity of their genome, for example. Right. I think one of the things we have in common is that we have a strong plant background as plant pathologists. I did three degrees in forestry before getting into plant pathology. And I think that was a great thing because it really made me understand and appreciate plant diversity and understand plant biology. And it, it gave me this really good baseline for better understanding and appreciating plant disease uh, because you spend so much time around plants and thinking about plants. Then you naturally transition to study diseases that impact those plants. And you and I talked about that during my interview, but I could see that in you as well. I think it also reflects what plant pathology is. It's such a big, tense discipline. There really is um, room for various different educational pathways. I come, you come from this plant world, whereas some of our colleagues might be experts in bacteria or viruses or fungi or oomycetes, and somehow our shared interests of making plants healthy, making agriculture sustainable, those overarching goals allow us to really work together in creative different ways. Right. Absolutely. One of the other things that we share in common that I really wanted to bring up was you have a master's of science. Before you went into your PhD, you, you got a master's from the same institution, University of Wisconsin-Madison. I also have a master's. I did that at a separate institution than my PhD program. But I think there's this big drive by institutions to push PhDs. And a lot of people bypass getting a master's degree. Do you feel like the master's degree as a stepping stone into graduate school is a smart move? What, do you, what are your feelings on that? First, let me explain my master's because it didn't quite follow the pathway that you just articulated. I okay. actually started in the PhD program at University of Wisconsin. This was in plant breeding and plant genetics. At the time, maybe even now, they had the option to receive the master's degree as an integral part of that. I actually entered grad school thinking that I would pursue a PhD and that opportunity was available. So I, I pursued that master's with the same graduate advisor, Mike Havey. However, as a longtime instructor, I, I think the master's degree really does have some value. I think for so many of our students today, there's an interest not necessarily in the traditional academic route, not, not becoming professors, for example, but maybe working in industry or in government. And I think there are a lot of very valid, meaningful, important career pathways that really lend itself to the, the master's degree as a terminal degree. I think even though 
for students that are interested in going that more traditional route for whatever reason, not earning a, a PhD degree, the, the master's does give a student an opportunity to try out a project, to try out a graduate advisor, make sure there's a good fit before committing. And, and I think especially when there is a change in institution uh, along the way that broadens horizons. Uh, every university I've been connected with has a sort of a different culture, a different flavor, a different approach. And th these are subtle differences, but it's important, I think, to develop well-rounded professionals to be exposed to a variety of different cultures. Yeah, that's a really good point. When I was at the University of Maine completing my bachelor's degree, my undergraduate advisor offered me an opportunity to stay on to complete my master's. But he also said in the same breath, you should move on to another institution for your PhD because it's good to diversify your experiences. He wasn't one of these individuals that said, no, every degree has to be from a unique institution. They have to be separated by 2,000 miles. I think some of the old guard has different thoughts about whether or not you should stay at the same institution. But I think still having the option to get a master's along the way is a nice one because it gives people a time to reflect, maybe pause and think about, do I have a healthy relationship with my advisor? Or do I know what my next steps are? Do I need that PhD to get the job that I really want? Yeah, it's a great point. And one thing that I've observed over the years and I've actually um, advised to various students on is that the PhD degree, while phenomenal, it does lead to these incredible career pathways that are um, just absolutely privileged. At the same time, the PhD degree is somewhat limiting. I think there, there's a lot more career flexibility associated with the, the master's degree than with the PhD. And I come really from an academic background, so I, I'm probably um, speaking more about the academic pathway, but most of my colleagues, uh, most of the folks that, that I've known over the years end up moving sometimes great distances to pursue their academic career. And, and all of the life changes, the family complexities that go along with that are really a, almost a hallmark of that PhD level um, approach where the masters, there are more opportunities out there geographically. I think it's a little bit more flexible. Right. Thinking about and talking about career changes and moving, you recently made a big career move yourself. After 20 years at the University of Minnesota, you moved to join CSU, Colorado State University, and that's been a big move for you. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing there and what may be inspired you to move on after such a successful two decades in Minnesota, first as professor, then as department head, then as founder of the Stackman Borlaug Center. You accomplished a great deal in Minnesota, and it's clear that you had a, a tremendous positive impact on the department while you were there. Yeah, please tell us all about your new your new venture here in, in Colorado and what you're up to. Yeah, thanks for that. I guess this is a good moment for me to give a shout out to University of Minnesota and the Department of Plant Pathology there in particular. The As you mentioned, I, I spent more than 20 years there as a, a faculty really coming up in ranks. And it's a, a place with an incredible history and an even brighter future. And I love every individual in that department. I love that department. After leading it for almost nine years as department head, I felt that I had done what I could do for the department. And I have to say that I inherited the role of department head from Carol Ishimaru, who was a professor. Oddly, she got her start at Colorado State University. We hired her at University of Minnesota to be the department head. 
she went on to be APS president. So many of our listeners certainly know her. She had done so much to transform our department to really bring it into a modern era. And I appreciated that work so much. It really gave us a strong foundation on which to, to build further. So I, I, I think we collectively did a lot of uh, really incredible things to rethink the department, our, our role in society, our commitment to students and in the field of plant pathology. After nine years, though, I, I did feel that I had done what I could do for the department. And while it was going well, I did feel that what I could offer really was more of the same. So I felt at the, the time the department would benefit from fresh ideas, new leadership. At the same time, and this was very much in the height of the pandemic, which probably also influenced my thinking um, as it has for so many of us. But I was also feeling that I was ready for new challenges professionally. I didn't, for various reasons, didn't see that happening at University of Minnesota. And we had decided to spend one year looking elsewhere, other institutions, for a, a new opportunity for me. And it, we had lived in Minneapolis, loved the city. It was a great place to be all those years. We had a very short list of other places we'd like to live, Denver being one of them. And it just so happened that Colorado State University was creating a brand new campus in Denver and was looking for somebody to lead the academic programming there. So it was somewhat fortuitous, I think, in, in the way that it evolved. My role right now, I'm an associate vice president for the CSU Spur campus. And CSU, sorry, that Colorado State University is in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is in the northern part of the state. Denver's about an hour and 15 minutes south of there. We've established a small campus in Denver, and I work across the university with eight different colleges, with Extension, with our Ag, ag Experiment Station to bring programming to life here. Now, what's really unique about CSU Spur is that it's outward facing. And to me, it's an exploration of how land-grant universities are evolving to meet the needs and expectations, opportunities of society. And so I think of CSU Spur in part as a sandbox, allowing us to test out new ideas of how we teach, how we make educational opportunities accessible, which ultimately influences who gets to be part of that. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a number of academic programs that we offer on site. This includes programming really along a pre-K to gray lifelong learning spectrum. So we do a lot of work with for example, high school students to demonstrate careers, to have conversations about career opportunities. We offer a, a variety of summer camps that help students envision themselves in careers or to prepare for college. We have a small number of undergraduate classes that we're offering on site right now, as well as a master's and PhD programs, a growing number of certificate programs. We've just expanded OSHER Lifelong Learning, which is it's actually a nationwide program here in the U.S. that builds itself as a mini college for people over 50. So we've expanded this program to include courses that we're offering at CSU Spur as well. This is a really unique campus where we're really reinventing our educational relationship. And to me, the theme that is most valuable is one of educational flexibility. For example, our undergraduate classes, and we have two um, undergraduate biology courses that we're teaching on site, but these are in hybrid format. The uh, lectures are asynchronous online, so students access the lectures whenever, wherever they're ready for it. And then the lab experiences are taught at CSU Spur in Denver, but not as a sort of Tuesday, Thursday afternoon class that we might be all familiar with, but as a one day a month. Saturday intensive. So students are on site six or eight hours. 
one day a month, needing that laboratory experience. That's a great opportunity to bring them in because I feel like that uninterrupted learning for six to eight hours is going to really help them wrap their heads around something versus coming in for one hour for four days a month or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're all very different, right? People are are different. Learners are different. And the way you learn is different. Plus, your life situations might dictate unusual schedules. So we lean into things like weekend courses, evening courses, certificate programs as either a complement or an alternative to degree programs. So lots of different opportunities. And, and I think fundamentally, our new campus in Denver is really about diversifying our career pathways, providing different opportunities for different learners here in Denver. Obviously, lifelong learning, over 50 small college, summer camps, opportunities for high schoolers. This is all new. All these initiatives are new because SPUR is new. What are you seeing the most growth in so far? Are you not at the point where you have metrics for that? What's working? What's not? Yeah, we just two days ago celebrated our one-year anniversary. So we are quite new. We have three buildings, the, the third of which has, has been open a, a year now. So we are still building out that programming. And when I, I say programming, uh, the majority of it comes from the faculty in Fort Collins. And so this, uh, again, is a, a wide array from the arts to engineering. Certainly agriculture is a, a big footprint. I would say our educational programs are still new enough that we're figuring out what works and what doesn't. We have some unique research, though, that is really going like gangbusters. And this includes research on things like agrivoltaics, so growing crops under solar panels, which probably doesn't work very well in much of, of the country, but in really sunny areas like Colorado, it, it does. We have also a growing emphasis in innovation. So this idea of helping researchers bring discoveries to market helping the needs of industry drive research interests, preparing students for careers as a, a business leader. That, I think, has been a really early success. It's taken many different forms from agribusiness and food innovation management to biosystems engineering. So a wide array of opportunities to interact with industry in, in brand new ways. So I've been associate vice president for almost two years now, and my job is to talk about SPUR all day, every day, and to get people excited about it. I promise listeners, though, that this is a brand new concept in higher education, and it defies a simple definition. So let me invite you to come to Denver to visit this place. Our buildings are open to the public. It's free to come and take a look. And if you want, reach out to me. Happy to give tours or talk to you about this amazing place. It really is something that I think is worth the trip to see. Okay, let's talk on that a little more then. You're one year in. What's been, in your eyes, your greatest accomplishment in your time there? When I first came here, there were obviously robust building plans, and all three of our buildings were under construction. And there were some nascent early, I call them the pioneering projects that had been handpicked to be on site. But there was a lot of confusion within our Fort Collins community, the faculty, the staff, the students, about what this thing even is, what CSU SPUR is. So I've, I've been able to, number one, articulate a vision for how CSU SPUR helps our land-grant campus in Fort Collins really extend that promise, to, to reinvent, to reinvest in our relationship with society through education, through research, through service and outreach. And... I spent a lot of time in Fort Collins, a lot of time talking with deans and faculty and department chairs about the opportunities here. And that has translated, I think, into 
bigger understanding, but also some incredible creativity. We have three beautiful buildings, but it is the creativity of the faculty that bring our buildings to life. And I see my role really as being that guy to help people explore possibilities and then to test out some of the new ideas on site. Change is hard. And CSU Spur is a place that really requires folks to think differently, to, to reinvent themselves. So I, I've been, I think, really successful in supporting our, our community to get the most out of this place. I think as long as I've known you, and I don't even know how long it is, but clearly we've interacted through our professional society, APS, a number of times. I've always admired your kind of vision. You tend to be a person who is a big idea guy. And I think that that's reflected in the kinds of positions that you've held. You were a department head, a very successful one in Minnesota. You helped to found the Stackman Borlaug Center. You're helping Spur get off the ground here. I want to tie this back to something that maybe some of our listeners might be thinking about, is that at some point in your academic trajectory or career path, you might be interested in more administrative work. You may be more interested in leading, serving those roles, whether it be a professional society, and you've really embraced those leadership roles. I guess a question that I have, is that kind of a unidirectional trajectory, whereas once you get into that track, it's hard to pivot back to that flame in your heart for research? And what advice might you give students who, or even academics, PIs that are interested in and maybe having more of a role in shaping their departments, whether it be a chair of the department or just getting more involved in leadership? That's a great question. And I think administration in higher ed, at least, really gets a bad rap so often. And I certainly, as a faculty member, never saw myself as a leader, never saw myself aspiring to be a department head. So it was a lot more opportunistic than it might actually appear. I got into this in, I guess it was 2013. I, I had just become full professor and was undergoing something of a, a personal professional crisis around what I wanted my career to be and where can you have impact? And I, I think that was the driving question for me. About that time, Carol Ishmaru, whom I mentioned, was the department head, announced that she would be stepping down. I guess it was my husband first who came to me and said, you should really think about doing this. And, and I said, no, I'll never do that. It, that's, that's not a role I see myself in. And then several of my colleagues at University of Minnesota, one by one, came to me and said, if you wanted to do this, we'd support that. So I, I went from, a, I'll, I'll never do this, to I think I'm going to apply in about three weeks. I was really amazed about six months in to, to realize that I really enjoy it. It is very different than leading your own research project, for example, but you sit at a higher level where you can see and embrace the broad impact of a group of the Department of Plant Pathology in this particular case, and can become an advocate in supporting other people's vision and building collective goals. I like that role. It's something I think I, I did well, and uh, I would say it was probably a year or two into my, my role as department head that I woke up one morning realizing I'm good at this, which was certainly not a skill set that I thought I had. So as I deepen my interest in higher ed administration, I guess I see that leadership as a talent that I can bring to the table. It has come at a cost to my own personal research. And I admire so many of our colleagues who have been academic leaders in different ways and have kept their research program strong. I am not one of those individuals. I still very much have interest and passion for it. 
but realized probably six or seven years ago now that I, I was always feeling either I wasn't doing enough for my research or I was shortchanging the department. So there was always this uneasy tension that I, I felt and never quite felt good about either role that I was playing. So I made a very conscientious decision to back burner my research. Those interests are still there. I'm actually in the process right now of reinventing some of my most recent research interests as a, a learning asset for CSE Spur. But that's allowed me to lean into administration and leadership in a way that I think has been good. If you're interested in these career pathways, number one, talk to folks that are already in there, get different perspectives because you're going to hear a bunch of different ideas and pathways. It's not for everyone. I, I think really successful leaders approach the role as servants. And I've learned actually there's this whole field of philosophy called the, the servant leader, where you really do see yourself, for example, as a department head, you might see yourself as a servant to support the faculty or the research staff or the graduate students that are in the program. So your job becomes really aligned with the needs and opportunities that these individuals face. So it's a different way of thinking. I've really enjoyed, though, the potential to have broad impact, to really elevate what I could do as an individual to a, a higher level. Yeah. And thinking about something you said, putting your research on the back burner, because in order to give and commit to the department the way that you wanted to commit, your research had to be put on the back burner. It's clear that there are individuals that have the ability to do both research and leadership concurrently and do both very well. But I think this is a good point to bring up to maybe listeners is that you don't have to maintain research if you go into kind of leadership roles or administrative roles, but you still have the ability to do that if that's something you want. Just a matter of time allocation and making sure you're doing both jobs effectively because you have students counting on you, you have faculty counting on you seems like a, a lot to balance, and I wouldn't want to balance that. But I, I see maybe why you moved on from Minnesota. And that raises the question, if you had had a stronger research component that you were still maintaining, do you think you would have felt compelled to go back into the professor role in your research and stay there rather than moving on? Because you've devoted so much of your energy into leadership. It seemed like you didn't have another bigger leadership role to step into. That's a very insightful question. <laughs> so so as, as department head, when I was nearing the end of my tenure there and really feeling that I had given what I could to the department and that I was ready for a new change, certainly one model was to go back to the faculty. By the way, I'd, uh, while I had backburnered my research, I'd cut my teaching alive. So that was my compromise. I, I enjoyed teaching and, it, and that was a piece that was personally fulfilling for me. I was still teaching courses as a department head. I referenced a moment ago that we had decided to spend one year looking elsewhere. <laughs> and our agreement was that I would spend that one year trying to find that dream job out there. And if that didn't happen, I was going back to the faculty. I would have been very happy either way, leaving that amazing department at University of Minnesota, leaving those people, leaving our home, our friends. That's a big change. And it, it certainly came with personal challenges as well. So it would have been very easy to stay in that role. And I think I would have very much enjoyed it, but it turned out in a different way. And, and I think that's one of the messages I guess I'll, I'll give to anyone who's thinking about administration is to be open to possibilities that we never saw living in Colorado as part of our life plan by any means, but it's been a really positive change. 
Yeah. And also you moved to a bigger city, right? You went from about, what, 400,000 to about 700,000? Yeah. So yeah, Denver more or less is the size of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota together. So the I guess the greater metro is probably similar, but the city itself is larger than Minneapolis is. Random um, question. It, was it challenging to move to an area that was over 4,000 feet higher in elevation than where you were previously? Neither of us have had any challenges with that. I, I think we moved into a very tall townhouse, so we do a lot of stairs. And we probably were panting a lot for <laughs> the, the uh, first few months of that. And I don't know if that's the altitude or the the whole lockdown phase and, and not going to the gym for several months. But I don't think we really had too many problems adapting. Having said that, we spend a lot of time in the mountains. We really have embraced the idea of hiking. Uh, mountains are incredibly novel for us. And we spend as much time as we can in the, the mountains. So when you're getting up 11,000, 12,000 feet, certainly we're feeling it. We talked a little bit about that we knew each other through the American Phytopathological Society. And of course, that's something that you've given a lot of time and energy to over your career. I think it would be appropriate to talk about how our professional society has shaped your career, including Plantopia, which you served as host for the last 24 episodes. You're welcome to talk about any aspects of APS and maybe catch the listeners up on what different committees and your involvement in the society, but definitely want you to address your experiences with Plantopia, if you don't mind. Sure. APS has been a key part, I think, of my development as a plant pathologist. And I guess I remind everyone that I, I really came from strictly the plant side. So the anticipating a career in, in plant breeding, ending up working in plant disease resistance, and then ultimately ending up in the Department of Plant Pathology. I think APS was really important for me to tap into this field of study, both from an educational perspective to get up to speed about what plant health is all about. Certainly networking, though, has been so important. And you're one of many uh, folks that I've met through APS. Actually, I think we met through Twitter <laughs> originally. Hi. And But APS has been, I think, an incredible professional society for me. And I've been members of lots of different professional societies. And I think APS really has a a unique culture that you don't see everywhere. The level of involvement of our colleagues as volunteers in APS is phenomenal. You've referenced some of the committees and offices and boards that exist. It's pretty extensive. And it's amazing to have so many of our colleagues give their time so freely and so passionately to further plant health research, plant health impacts. I think it's also very important for early career professionals, for graduate students to really build that network and APS and service on committees and APS in particular could really be a key part of that. Over the years, I've been involved in a number of our disciplinary um, in APS. Uh, I was very involved in the Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, uh, still, still am as a member, OWLS, which is the Academic Leader Forum. I just, as of this past August, at the end of our plant health meeting, I rotated off APS council. So I served for five years as the internal communications officer, which was really amazing to, to sit in the council meetings and to get an appreciation of the scope and scale of work that's done. And I, I have to give a shout out to our presidential lineage and everyone who's ever served on the presidential lineage. These individuals commit to a four-year term, a leadership term for APS, serving first as vice president, then president-elect, 
president and then immediate past president. So really on an annual basis, rotating through that. And these people give so much time and so much energy and creativity to APS. It is, it's phenomenal to see their work. So APS has been great to be part of this community. You asked about Plantopia in particular, and I did this. Plantopia actually started in 2020, which was the International Year of Plant Health. Of course, that's also when COVID came along. People were thinking about many things in that time period. But Plantopia was envisioned by Mary Palm as a, a, a way of um, reaching out to a broader population to help them understand that plants get sick, that plant pathologists play an important role in society. And so Plantopia was just envisioned for that one year. David Goduri at Cornell was the host and did a really great job in, I think, maybe 20 different episodes were put out in that the period. And if anyone wants to go back and review them, they're all available at the landing page for this at plantopiapodcast.org. And then when I joined the APS Council, Mark Gleason, who was president at the time, said, hey, maybe we should reinvent Plantopia, really positioning it as an asset for plant scientists, plant pathologists in particular, and approached me about being the host at that point. So I stepped in it in some ways. And I have to admit, I'm not somebody who listens to podcasts a lot. So it was a, a fun challenge and something I've really enjoyed doing. Do you have a, a special memory or uh, something that surprised you during those 24 episodes you did? I'm not looking for you to talk about anything that like, we did, but I, I'm sure during those 24 episodes, something might have come up in one of the interviews that just changed the way you thought or as a, a like specific memory of your time as host that really stands out? Gosh, that's, there were a lot. I think I've become a lot more conscientious of my phraseology. I think some of the early episodes, I'd say, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. I would, I had these phrases that I would go to and probably repeat too much. So I became a little self-conscious of what I say. I've really enjoyed meeting some incredible guests over that period of time and asking some questions that I probably wouldn't ask. Otherwise, it was fun to be able to pry a little bit in, in their careers and career interests. A novel to me, uh, the importance of smoke or wildfire smoke as a mechanism for dispersal of plant pathogens, the importance of indigenous ways of knowing in plant pathology and, and how so much of our science really grew out of, as it is currently manifested, our science that so many of us would think about has grown out of a sort of a Western framework and that there are actually other ways of knowing and thinking about that. I think the importance of international experiences is something that has really stood out. It's something that's always been important to me personally, but as I've talked to more people, those international experiences, thinking about plant health as a global challenge and a global opportunity is something that stands out. Well, having been on the other side of the microphone, when you interviewed me, I think the thing that stands out to me personally and listening to some of your other episodes it's that you really invite people to open up and they feel comfortable opening up to you. And I hope I can embody that as we move forward with Plantopia. But I think it's really important to trust the person interviewing you and know they're coming from a good place. This is not the kind of podcast where we're talking about controversial things, but people let their guard down. They talk about what makes them human. They talk about their struggles. And as a plant pathologist, I want to hear about research, but I want to hear about what makes the researcher human and their path, their unique circumstances. So I think I appreciate the fact that 
you allowed people the space to talk about those things without feeling like they were pressured into talking about them. They just felt comfortable enough to open up to you. I appreciate that a lot. And as we were uh, considering that reboot of Plantopia in season two, I think it was important for all of us to showcase the person behind the science. But yes, talk science, absolutely talk science, but also recognize that we are all humans and bring our messy complexity to the table. And that referencing something I said earlier, that plant pathology really is this big tent field and that there are different perspectives, different approaches, different areas of expertise, and it all works like magic because we all share the passion and goal of uh, making plants healthy. As a member of council and, and serving on a lot of important committees at APS, you help advance a lot of things regarding DEI, but you yourself have been a huge advocate for DEI in your role as a department head, as faculty. There's a lot of pushback right now on DEI, of course. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts or things you'd like to share about that space. It doesn't have to be APS related, but clearly I think you and I are in agreement that our professional society is doing a great job, not just being performative, but actually coming up with a plan to address things and being as inclusive as possible. But not every environment is like that. Not every state is like that. Not every institution is like that. What advice do you have maybe for people that really want those DEI initiatives, but might not have access to them? Yeah, it's tough. And it's a tough time that we're living in. There's no question about that. No matter your political perspective, <laughs> this is a, a, a tough time. I think for me, my, my personal commitment to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion really come from my own career path, my own really very improbable career path, I would say. I I come from very humble beginnings. I alluded to the fact that my parents weren't very successful farmers. And in fact, we really fell into very significant financial hardship by the time I was in high school. And I do not come from a traditional educational background by any sense. My, my father had an eighth grade education. My mother uh, graduated high school. So, so I'm certainly the first in my family to go to school. I don't think I'd be where I am today if it wasn't for mentors for institutional investment in things like the land-grant university system, the Pell Grant program, which provides educational access, uh, higher, higher ed access for low-income students. These programs, these sort of broader societal good programs and individuals really help me develop as a professional and to get to where I'm at. So when I think about that journey in that really very unlikely um, journey, I have to recognize that there are so many people for whom education is still not fully accessible. Right. And as an educator, as a department head, now as associate vice president at a university, I'm in a unique role to be able to diversify those opportunities and to really lean into what education can be for society, to reinvent that where it needs to be reinvented. And throughout my career, I think it's just been a logical extension of my own personal experiences and wanting to, to make a difference in whatever way I can. And I think we, we talk more openly as a society now about opportunities and privilege and, and biases. And I think that's a good thing. And there's so much more work to be done. So I guess uh, to, to answer your question, individuals that depending on, on where they're at, one, recognize your privilege and recognize the challenges that you face. Seek out those mentors, 
leaned into opportunities that your institution, your employer might offer, your community organizations might offer, lean into some of the opportunities that APS offers. Build that network. I, I think that is a critical piece of it. And and for anyone in a, a leadership role, lead with authenticity, I think, and recognize that certainly in the educational world, where we all end up is a product of investments that societies have made over centuries. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that I think about is that a lot of the students here at West Virginia University that are in the Davis College, interested in agriculture and plant sciences, they tend to be a lot of first-generation college students like you were, and there's still a lot of economic hardship in the population that are interested in plant sciences. Continuing on this kind of conversation topic, what advice might you have for students who are considering plant pathology or plant health related studies and how might they get more involved? It sounds like things like SPUR are providing early opportunities to high schoolers. And I think that's a great opportunity to expose high schoolers to career paths in the plant sciences and, and related to plant health and other things like that. But what advice might you give those students? Yeah, I think of the plant sciences, actually agriculture more broadly has evolved so much in my career time. I think when I first, and as a child, thought about plant science and being a plant scientist, I saw my role as maybe a farmer, maybe a nursery owner. But I think the field of agriculture has evolved so much. Agriculture is so tied in with environmental sustainability these days. It is part of that story. It is part of that solution. It's not the foe, right? It, it's a partner in thinking about our relationship with the environment. Technology has influenced agriculture so much as it has uh, every other aspect of our lives. Obviously, traditional production pathways, farmer, rancher, those opportunities are still important. They're still out there. But you also see a reinvention in many communities. You see a reinvention of, in a way, old-fashioned ideas of small producers selling locally. And so I guess the, the piece I'm trying to articulate is that there are many different career opportunities in agriculture, in the plant sciences. You can live in downtown Denver and contribute to agriculture in the plant sciences. And I'm living proof of that. So there, there are a world of opportunities that are out there. The other piece related to that that I want to lean into a little bit is that my recommendation for students is to think broadly about your experiences. Study more than just horticulture. I was such a plant nerd. That's all I wanted to study. And I'm surprised at how often I use organic chemistry in, in some of the work that I do or computer science. I wish I had actually done formal training in computer science because that's become such an important part of our work. But also beyond your curriculum, pursue professional development opportunities. Take workshops in, in science communication. Do, do the APS uh, workshop on research ethics, for example. Uh, pursue international experiences. Go work in industry. Get out of your comfort zone. I think that is an important part of your evolution as a professional. And, and you never know where your plant science career is going to go. So these experiences are not something that I think are optional. I think they really are critical to being a successful plant scientist. Yeah. And when you think about the way that, you know, the industry and, and maybe our profession is going, there's a lot of automation, there's a lot of use of AI and a lot of these modern tools that will undoubtedly help our profession. But there may be people that are saying, I want to be that farmer. I want to learn how to do conventional agriculture. And I think 
there's still opportunities for that. But you're right. There's this kind of like reinvestment in, in small agriculture and, and kind of conventional agriculture concurrent to advancing genetic engineering and some of these other tools that we need to feed the world. But there's there's room for people doing all sorts of things to contribute to modern agriculture, like you said. We're getting close to our time together, but I wanted to provide an opportunity for you to talk about something that didn't come up in this hour we've had together. Is there anything else you'd like to bring up here while we're... Well, I'm going to flip the tables on you a little bit and ask you what we can expect from Plantopia moving forward. What are some of your ideas for evolving this podcast? As you're aware of, and maybe the listeners aren't, is that we have a, a committee that helps decide speakers and that reduces bias in selecting speakers and ensures that we have a real inclusive list of people to interview and talk about. What I'd like to do over my time here is to see not only integration of second language interviews, I thought if we could have some guest hosts where English is in their primary language, they can help to interview someone else whose primary language is not English, whether it be in Spanish or French, even having a portion, maybe asking the same questions in English and Spanish so that we could reach a broader audience. Another thing that I would like to see is maybe bringing one of the episodes into the lab or partially into the field to interview someone as research is happening. Those sound effects and things we hear on NPR when they're in the field interviewing people, I think it's nice to go visit people and see what they do in their own labs. It's nice to hear them talk about it, but it's another thing to see it. So I'd like to have at least one episode from the field or, or from the lab. There's some challenges there with audio, but I think we can make that work. And just trying to fill in the gaps of the types of positions and perspectives that maybe weren't covered in the first 64 episodes, just because there's a diverse group of plant pathologists. I think you've done a great job capturing different people at different career stages and different industry and government, but we want to see more of that. For now, that's it, but certainly open to suggestions too as we move forward. We'll probably provide some kind of link for people to make suggestions, although we do have a committee that kind of goes through these names and, and tries to maximize our footprint across our profession. So that's a little bit about what I'm thinking. <laughs> that, that's exciting. I uh, can't wait to see how this continues to evolve. And again, thank you so much for picking up the mantle on this. Yeah, well, thanks again for joining us today. It's nice to have you on the other side of the microphone, and I hope you'll um, listen in as we move forward. Certainly, I'll be reaching out to ask for advice uh, when I get to those challenging interview questions, but thanks so much. I have Jim. to say, it is a lot more nerve-wracking to be on this side of the desk. <laughs> <laughs> we have just heard from Dr. Jim Bradeen, former Plantopia host, professor, and vice president of Colorado State University Spur Campus. I'm Matt Casson, host of Plantopia. Thanks for listening. 